0: Good morning everyone. My name is Amy Foster and I am just so um, delighted to be part of the teaching team here at Women in the Word. So happy to be here studying Genesis with you. So thanks for being here. Thanks for caring about studying God's Word, caring about studying Genesis even if you've studied it before and thanks to the West Campus. We're so happy to get to do this with you. So welcome this morning. Uh, Genesis 3 really is on some levels a pretty heartbreaking story it's the story of man rebelling against god and it's the beginning of a theme that we see throughout the scriptures and it's a theme of blessing and curses and we just have to remember genesis is laying the foundation for everything else that's going to come in the scriptures and we've already seen um, that Genesis shows us the world exists because of God. Everything is here because of God and everything exists for the purposes of God. We see that in the very beginning of Genesis. I loved um, Deb shared a quote from us from Dr. Constable on our opening day. God desires to glorify himself by blessing mankind. That's why we're here. Uh, God's interaction with us brings him glory, and that's what he wants. So how does God bless mankind? He blesses Him by calling out individuals to live in relationship with him. We see him do that first with Adam and Eve, and then he does it with the children of Israel, and he does it with us today. That's why you're here. You think you're here because you chose to be here. God called you here. God called you here to know him in his word, to live in a blessed relationship with him. So we see in Genesis 3 this idea that when we obey God, There are blessings in our life. There's unity in our relationship with God. There's unity in our soul as it's connected to God. And that's a blessing. And that blessing flows out to our families, to our friends, to our community. But when we don't obey God, that unity is marred. The kinship that we experience in our relationship with God is marred. And it's not a blessing. Um, And that's a theme that we really see beginning in Genesis 3. It is a heartbreaking story. But it has a beautiful ending. It has a beautiful ending as the God of grace steps in and he rescues man from a catastrophe that man has created. And so I want to look at it and see the beauty in the story here. In chapter three, we see the generous character of God pursuing man for a special relationship. But what I love, he's not just pursuing man in the perfection of the garden. He's pursuing man for a relationship, even in the catastrophe that man has created, even in the messes we create in our own lives. God still pursues us for a relationship. I've shared with you before, I have three almost grown sons. Um, the story about sharing dirty socks makes me laugh. I'm sorry, I want to tell you, you've got a lot worse than that coming. <laughs> Um, Obviously, life with three boys in the house is full of catastrophes. I remembered one very distinctly as I was preparing this lesson today. And before I share it with you, I want to reassure you it has a good ending. I want to promise you no little boys were harmed in this story. Um, When my oldest was about three, we were new to Fort Worth. He was playing quietly in his room one day, and I heard an unusual crashing sound, much worse than the normal crashing sounds. I immediately called his name, Corey, are you okay? No answer. I start rushing towards his room, and while I'm rushing, I'm calling out, are you okay? No answer. I get to his room, and I can't get the door open. Some big, heavy piece of furniture has fallen in front of the door. As I'm struggling to get it open, I'm calling, are you okay? Silence. I get in the room. My eyes take it all in. A big bookshelf about four feet wide, six or seven feet tall, is toppled over. Books and toys everywhere. My mind is putting it all together. My little toddler's probably climbed on this bookshelf and pulled it over on top of himself. I'm panicked. I'm calling. Are you okay? No answer. I get that heavy bookshelf off of him, and there he is, perfectly still, not a scratch on him. Eyes like saucers. And I say, are you okay? He shakes his head yes. I scoop him up and he's trembling. And then I did the mom thing. Why didn't you answer me when I was calling you? (laughs) I will never forget his answer as he's trembling in my arms. He says, I was so scared. I told myself, don't move. Mom will come save you. (laughs) Don't move. Mom will save you. That beautiful protective response that comes out in moms. You know what? It didn't begin with me. It didn't begin with moms, with Eve. It began with God. It began in Genesis 3. That's where we see it the very first time. And it's God glorifying himself by rushing in and rescuing us. This is a rescue story in Genesis 3. So we're going to begin actually by looking back in Genesis 2. We're going to look at the very last verse in Genesis 2, and we're looking at it because that verse is considered a hinge verse, meaning it hinges what's happened in chapter 2, and it connects it to chapter 3, and that verse says, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Life at the end of Genesis chapter 2 was blessed and beautiful. In the creation account, we've looked at this the last few weeks seven times. At this point, God has looked at his work seven times and declared it good. And what is it good for? It's good for man. It's the perfect environment for God to put man right there in the middle of his goodness. And the word good here that God uses, it means beauty, purpose, order, integrity, safety. So we know that at the end of Genesis chapter 2, there was perfect unity between God and man. There was perfect unity between man and woman. And there was even perfect unity between mankind and the created world. And it was beautiful. And then we know that three times God stopped and he blessed his creation. To bless means to enhance, to make something better, to enrich it. So at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we know man had a blessed and a beautiful situation here in the world. He had a blessed and a beautiful beginning. It was actually a time of innocence, that word that we see in the hinge verse, naked, naked and unashamed. Naked doesn't really mean unclothed there, although they were probably unclothed. It means innocent. It means totally innocent, oblivious to evil, sinless. One translator says it actually means they don't know evil exists, not knowing where the traps might lay. Okay, so that's what's meant by naked. It was a time of innocence. And God had also given them a purpose. They were to procreate and fill the earth. They were going to do that together in perfect unity and love. And also they were going to rule over and control nature. And they were going to do that in perfect unity and goodness as perfect stewards of God's creation. And in all of this, they were going to experience the abundant blessings of living in unity with the Creator God in a perfect relationship with a good God. And in all that goodness, God gives them one rule of conduct, one boundary that he places around them. He prescribes for them the very best way for them to continue living in this good place. And when he prescribes this for them, he also requires their obedience. He asks for their obedience. Um, It's an interesting thing here. This is the first covenant that we see, and covenants occur a lot. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's a binding agreement, and there are terms. And we see God initiating the first covenant here with Adam and Eve, and it's a requirement to live in a united relationship with him. They needed to be obedient to his one requirement, his rule of conduct. And he warns them of the consequences of disobedience, And then he gives them something grand. He gives them freedom. He gives them the responsibility to choose. He doesn't make this relationship with them where they don't have a choice whether they're going to stay in it or not. He gives them the freedom to choose. And it was a covenant of obedience. You can look back in chapter 2 beginning in verse 16 and see that covenant. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the covenant. It was a beautiful and a blessed state. And God, who knows and desires their very best, asks for their obedience and their trust. we're quickly going to see the the story changes fast and the story changes when a new character emerges. Up to this point, it's just God and the man and the woman and the creation. And now we have the serpent in the story. So let's begin reading Genesis chapter 3, the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "'Did God actually say, "'You shall not eat of any tree in the garden?' And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In an instant, the creation moves from beautiful and blessed to this questionable, uncertain place. And it's dominated here by deception and desire. We have a new character in the story. It's the serpent. And if you did your homework, I asked you to flip back to the very end, Revelations 20, verse 2, where it tells us the ancient serpent who is the devil, Satan. The serpent is described as being more crafty than any other. That means he was subtle. He was shrewd. He knew about the traps. He knew exactly where they were. Um, We know from all of the Bible that uh, we have to piece together the information that we have about who Satan is. We get a little bit of information in the Old Testament. We get more detailed information in the New Testament. But we know that there were a group of angels who had rebelled against God. Deb mentioned this on our opening lecture. This may have occurred actually right before the creation account begins. A group of angels rebelled against God and Satan was their leader. So in the Old Testament, Satan is always described as God's adversary. In the New Testament, he's described in greater detail as the evil one, the destroyer, the murderer, the father of lies. Wherever we see Satan in the scripture, he's opposed to God, he's opposed to Jesus Christ, and he's opposed to the people of God. Wherever we see Satan, he's working to undermine faith and hope and godly character and unity and blessing and beauty. Satan is the enemy in this story. He immediately plants the seed of doubt in the woman's mind. And I think it's so important for us to slow down and look at this and pay attention to the pattern where the woman was deceived here. Because the same pattern exists today. We're all vulnerable to this pattern. He begins by doubting and distorting the word of God. Um, That's the first step in deception. He begins with, did God actually say Is that really what God said? Can it really be? He distorts God's word, and then he begins by saying, Did God actually say you cannot eat of any of these trees? Well, that's not how it started. When we look back at what God said in Genesis 2, he didn't begin with a broad restriction. God began with a very ample provision. You may eat of all these trees. And then he limited and put a restriction only around one. He pinpointed one thing that was off limits. So Satan is distorting God's word, and he's really distorting God's character here. He's suggesting that God is stingy. God is withholding everything. And that's a huge misrepresentation. But the woman listens to it, and she begins to doubt the words and the character of God. And as she listens more, she becomes increasingly vulnerable, and she's vulnerable to being deceived at this point. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to think about doubting the words and the character of God and how vulnerable it makes us. She does answer in an effort, I think, to set things right. She says, oh, no, we may eat of any of these trees, but the one tree in the middle of the garden, we may not eat it, and we may not touch it. Okay, we didn't read that when God gave his prohibition did we so she has added to God's word here something God never said so we also see that Eve is vulnerable to deception because she doesn't accurately know the word of God and she definitely doesn't handle it well in this instant that's a great thing for us to learn that knowing the word of God and handling it well is a protection for us Psalm 119 11 on your verse sheet says I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you That would have been helpful to Eve. Satan's next step is to deny the word of God. This is a flat-out denial. He says, you will not surely die. God had said, you will die. This is the first time a false doctrine enters creation, and this is a false doctrine that continues today. This is a false doctrine that plagues our world, and it's a doctrine that says God doesn't punish sin. And it's a lie, and it came straight from Satan. If we allow our minds to be deceived in this way, what we're doing, we're taking away the barrier. We're taking away the punishment. And then our natural desires quickly take over. And often, it doesn't end well when our natural desires take over. Think about it. If you never were going to get a speeding ticket, how would you drive? I thought about it this morning. I drive the tollway in, and I'm very careful about speed limits on the tollway but I thought about it. If there were no speed limits and if there were no ticket, what would dictate how fast I drive? I guarantee you I would have stayed home longer and enjoyed my second or third cup of coffee. I guarantee you the car who had cut me off at the intersection before I got on, I would have gotten in front of them. And I guarantee you the big truck with all the stuff on it, I would have sped up to get in front of them. Me, me, me. All my selfish desires would guide me and direct me if there were no barrier, if there were no punishment. And that's what we see happening here. We see that being a really risky place for her. We're going to see what happens when, when the woman is left to her desires. But Satan isn't quite finished. He suggests one more doubt. He really goes in here and he doubts and attacks the character of God. He suggests that God is withholding something good. He says, God knows Your eyes will be open. You will be like him. You will know good from evil. And here's the interesting thing about this. Satan's words are partially true. Partially true. Some of those things would prove to be a reality. Um, But what he's really doing, he's attacking the character of God and suggesting he's this proud God. And he's also appealing to mankind's pride, saying, You can be like God. Well, a good God who put his creation in a good place knows what's best for his creation. And he doesn't hold things out to keep them away. He holds things out to protect you and to keep you in a good and beautiful place. And he does that because that matches his character. Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It doesn't say withholding good things. His law is actually good for us. I have a quote that my dad gave me years ago, and I keep it. It says, "...if the commands of God are given by virtue of God's infinite knowledge, then every act of obedience gains for us every benefit of God's knowledge." God, who possesses all knowledge, tells us how to behave. And when we obey him, we get the benefit of all that knowledge that we don't have. God doesn't ask for obedience and trust to withhold something good. He asks for it in order to keep us in this blessed and beautiful place. But deception steps in and deception has only one purpose and it's to harm God's creation. Jesus describes Satan in the New Testament in exactly this way. He's speaking to some religious leaders who are actually following Satan. And listen to how he describes Satan. This comes from John 8:44. 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now he describes Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He was a murderer in Genesis chapter 3. That's what Jesus knows. Satan's desire here is to deceive mankind and to lead mankind into spiritual death. And here's how he does it. One person at a time, one woman at a time, one decision at a time, one deception at a time. That hasn't changed. Since Genesis 3. So we see this process of doubting and distorting the Word of God, of denying the Word of God, doubting God's character. It takes this woman to a place where the only thing she now has to consider is her own desire. And that's never a good thing. How does desire play out? Look at it. says, she desires the fruit because it's delicious food. She desires how beautiful and appealing it is to her eye. And she desires to be like God. So when everything else is taken away and she's left with desire, desire takes her straight into disobedience and she eats. She eats what God has forbidden and then she turns and she gives it to Adam also. Look at this pattern. You see it in James 1, beginning in verse 13 on your verse sheet. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and tempted by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That writer goes on to say, so do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Desire really is at the root of disobedience. Eve is desiring something here that God has not provided. She is desiring something that God has said no to. And that's really coveting, desiring what God hasn't given you. And there's nothing wrong with desiring good things. There's nothing wrong with having hopes and having dreams and looking forward to things. But God, if God has not provided them and we decide we should have them anyway then we're in danger and we're being deceived. And we're in danger that we're either going to be like Eve and we're going to sin in order to get what we think we deserve or we're going to sin against God in anger and rebellion because we're upset that we're not getting what we deserve. So this process of being led by our desires is risky. And what we're risking is our soul's unity with God. Look at what we read in 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Our desires, when they're outside of God's bounds, it says they're waging war against our soul, and that's our unity with God. This started as a battle for the woman's mind, and she lost that battle because she was deceived when she didn't handle God's word correctly. Then it moved on to a battle of her will, And she lost that battle because her own desires became the thing that were driving her. And right here we see she stepped clearly into disobedience and she took somebody else with her. Now it's an interesting thing. It says she gave the apple to Adam and he ate the fruit to Adam and he ate also. I didn't include this on your verse sheet, but you might want to write down 1 Timothy 2.14. And it says, And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and she became a transgressor. So we see this process of deception and desire that leads to catastrophe. And in an instant, they experience the consequences. All that they thought wouldn't happen happens. Before we read that passage and describe what that experience was like for them, I want you to remember what had Satan promised? What had temptation and desire told them they were going to get? You will not die. "...your eyes will be open, you'll be just like God, you'll know good from evil." That's what temptation had promised them. Let's see what they get. Begin reading with me in verse 7. "...then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he answered, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman answered, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, immediately we see a contrast from naked and unashamed, from blessings and beauty. Um, Now they have much to fear. Their unity and harmony is gone. And the lesson here is sin's reality doesn't match sin's expectation. You know, Pastor Doug Cecil has a great quote. He says, you will never get out of sin what you went into sin to get. We sure see that in Genesis 3, don't we? Satan had promised their eyes would be open, and now they are. And here's what that means. They know they're naked. They know they're ashamed. God didn't have to tell them this. It was an immediate experience. The word naked used here, it looks like the same word in English, but in the original language, it's not the same word that's used up there in our hinge verse when it said they were naked and they were not ashamed. That word meant innocent, and the word down here where they realized they were naked, it means under God's judgment. Before, they didn't even know evil existed. They didn't know there were traps. Now they immediately know we've fallen into it, and we are judged by God. In an instant, that's what they've experienced. They're experiencing shame. And so we see them uh, inadequately trying to cover their shame with fig leaves. That doesn't work because God sees all and shame is always exposed. So as a result, they're uncomfortable with each other. That kind of looks like this. And they're uncomfortable with God. That kind of looks like this. They're hiding and they've lost their unity. Um, Temptation works this way so often it promises all these things that you're going to gain and it doesn't tell you what you're going to lose and they lost a lot in that moment Um, what they didn't know they thought that they could have the knowledge of good and evil but what they didn't know is only god knows what is good for man Only God knows, and that's why he tells us and gives us these boundaries. The knowledge that they would gain from this experience, it wouldn't be factual head knowledge. It would be experiential knowledge. They would experience evil. They would have intimate experience with evil. That's what Satan really promised them, and in an instant, that's what they're receiving, and they understand it right away. So they find themselves no longer blessed and beautiful, but now they are ashamed and in need, and they're hiding from God They're aware of how inadequate they are in front of His holiness, and we call this the fall. And it's called that because they have fallen out of unity with God. They've fallen out of that beautiful, blessed relationship that they initially had. Now they're ashamed and they are in need. Um, At this point, We've seen God. We've seen him as the powerful creator God acting with goodness and generosity. And now we're going to see the gracious, saving, rescuing God coming in not to condemn them but to save them from the mess that they've made. It's so curious. um, We see God who is all-knowing asking questions. Did any of you read that and think, why is God asking questions? He knows where they are. He sees all. He knows exactly what they've done. But he's asking them questions, and we think this looks like the angry parent coming and shaking a finger, saying, What have you done? Why didn't you answer me? That's not what God is doing. He's taking them through this progression of questions because he needs to get them to a place of confession. He needs to get them to acknowledge what they've done. It's not about condemnation. He's a holy God, and he did impose a standard on them. And and that standard has to, to stand. But even when they mess up and even when they violate that standard, he's a saving God who wants to set things right with them again. So please don't read this and hear an angry, condemning God here. He's rushing in to save them. On your verse sheet, Isaiah 46 describes this. Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. That's God telling us who he is. And then in John 3:17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we see God's desire in 1 Timothy 2.4, God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This isn't an angry, condemning God rushing in to make them feel crummy. It's a loving God rushing in to save them. So he takes them through this series of questions to get them to a place of confession, and I'm just going to acknowledge this is the crummiest confession you'll ever read. It's just terrible. <laughs> I thought if you've raised kids, you've heard some pretty crummy confessions. This one's pretty good. Um, God asks them what they've done, and immediately we see the unity that existed between the two of them, it is gone. They're blaming each other. The unity that existed between mankind and creation is gone. They're blaming the serpent. And Even though it's a crummy confession, they do ultimately end with these three simple words, and I ate and I sinned, and I'm messed up. That is what confession is, and that was God's purpose to lead them to that place. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The guilt and the shame that they were feeling, the guilt and the shame that we feel when we violate God's standard, God wired us to feel that. Not so we would feel crummy and condemned, but so we would confess and turn back to him and have our unity restored with him. 1 John 1.9 says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why he goes in asking those questions there. So we see he's a powerful creator God. He's a gracious, saving God. He is also a holy, righteous God and disobedience cannot go unpunished. Satan's lie was truly a lie. Um, God responds here. He saves them, but he also responds with curses and judgment because there has to be a consequence for their disobedience. And from this moment on, for the rest of times, things would be drastically changed in creation, and every human being from this moment forward, would experience the consequence of this disobedience. Let's read about that beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." "'To the woman,' he said, "'I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. "'In pain you shall bring forth children. "'Your desire shall be for your husband, "'and he shall rule over you. "'And to Adam he said, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife "'and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, "'you shall not eat of it. "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. "'Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, "'and you shall eat the plants of the field.' By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right. First, God curses the serpent. To curse is the opposite, to bless. Remember we said God blesses, and that's to enrich and enhance. To curse is to impose a barrier, Um, And God is the only one who can curse. He curses the serpent, and He says, just the animal of the snake will now slither on its belly. It will eat dust. It will be the lowest of all the other animals. The animal would be a reminder to the world of this incident when mankind fell out of a united relationship with God. That's the curse for the animal. For Satan, there would also be a perpetual struggle between the serpent and the woman and between her offspring and his. That means the people of God and the people who follow Satan will always be opposed to each other. And a really important thing, the most important thing in this whole passage, you see in verse 15, this idea of the woman's offspring. It's very important. It starts right here. It's introduced for the first time. The offspring is the first uh, reference to the Savior that God is going to send into the world. That's a reference to Jesus Christ, who one day God would send into the world. Eve would produce children. All of humanity would come from that beginning. Ultimately, Jesus Christ would be born from that beginning. And it says those who follow Satan will always be in conflict with those who follow Christ. But there in verse 15, our great hope, when it talks about her offspring, it's talking about Jesus. And it says, Jesus will bruise your head. Another translation says, Jesus will crush Satan's head under his foot. Wow. The promise of a Savior who would one day overcome Satan and death and hell and God's judgment, the promise of that Savior comes in right here in the very first curse, the very first horrible consequence for sin. And he was a Savior who would overcome the judgment that was required by a holy and a perfect God. And it tells us that while we wait for Jesus' ultimate victory, Satan is going to be there nipping at our heels. He's always going to be working against the people of God, but ultimately Christ will prevail. And we see that here promised for the first time in Genesis chapter 3. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the offspring he's talking about. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy that initial deception that led man into disobedience. So right here is the hope of the world. Genesis is all about beginnings, and this is the beginning of the story of grace. And grace is woven all through the rest of God's story. Next, God judges the woman. He tells her the pains of childbirth would be multiplied. What's interesting is Eve was uniquely created to bear children. The things she was created to do, she would now do with great difficulty. That is the judgment against her. And it also suggests there will be conflict or potential conflict in the husband-wife relationship. That's what's meant in those words. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That rule over you, we're going to see those same words again when there's potential conflict between two brothers. So come back in a week or two, and you'll see those words again. What we have to remember here, there was perfect unity in the relationship between the man and the woman initially. And God's authority within that marriage relationship had been established from the moment of creation. Adam was created first, and Eve was created next from Adam. And she was described as one who would be a helper, a helpmeet to him. And that was a very honorable term. We know from our study last week they were both made in the image of God, both with equal value um, and equal worth, but God had established an authority structure in creation that placed Adam as the head. In this perfect state with Adam as the head, initially there was unity and there was goodness and there was love, but now in the fallen state the potential for discontent and conflict and contention would be there. It would be difficult for wives to submit to their husband. It would be difficult for men to provide loving servant leaderships in their home. All the flaws of humanity are now coming into what was supposed to be a perfect and beautiful relationship, and that is part of God's judgment. Next, God judges Adam, and he actually curses the ground. The specific command, "Thou shalt not eat," it was given to Adam. And Adam was placed in authority. And we know with authority comes responsibility. That verse from 1 Timothy 2.14 says, Eve was deceived and she transgressed. Adam was not deceived. Adam was given God's command and Adam disobeyed. And now the ground is cursed as Adam is held responsible for that. It says sorrow, toil, hard labor, sweat would now be required to get the earth to produce food. And we see the same thing for Adam, the thing he was uniquely created to do, to steward and rule the earth. He would still do it, but he would do it now with much more difficulty. And it would be this way until you return to the ground. Death would be the end of man. They hadn't experienced this yet in creation, both physical death and spiritual death. It's interesting that they had dreamt of becoming like the eternal God, and now their bodies would die and become like dust. They had dreamt of knowing good from evil, and now their soul has experienced evil, and it has separated them from God. And that's what death is. It's separation from God. So they have a spiritual separation from God, and there's a physical death that is to show the world that separation from God. This began a new age and we all live in this age. One author described it as human freedom now would always struggle with divine sovereignty. That's how we live today. Another author says an anti-God mindset became a part of Adam on that day and it was passed to each of his descendants. So each one of us Every person who's lived since this time has this anti-God mindset, this inclination to do our own thing, to be led by our own desires, and not to follow God. Satan's words, you will not die, would definitely prove to be a lie, because there will always be a penalty for sin. So that sounds like a pretty awful place to end the story. Fortunately, God doesn't end it there. Um, Let's read about God's redemption and restoration. You know, I loved in our sermon series that Ted began on Sunday, he said, God can recycle things in our lives. For those who are pursuing God and following him, he will recycle the suffering in our lives. And that's exactly what we're going to see him do right here. He's going to recycle this awful, terrible thing that's happened. Read with me beginning in verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of the life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken." He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, hope arrives. It's a little hard to see, but hope arrives when Eve is given her name. She would continue to fulfill her purpose. She would be the mother of all the living, and we know that the hope of the world would come through that, um, through her offspring. In the meantime, God is going to take care of their nakedness their judgment, their condemnation, and their shame. It says God provided skins to clothe them. It's very clear from that passage that their fig fig leaves that they had made, those fig leaves were not adequate. They could not cover their shame on their own. They could not deal with God's judgment on their own. So it says God came in and he dealt with their judgment and he covered them with skins. We know, because we know other directions that God has given in the rest of the scriptures, that that means God sacrificed an animal. They they had not been carnivores. Animals had not been dying up to this point. So for God to cover them with skins meant God killed an animal. It's really important to remember as we're reading Genesis 3, Moses didn't write it as it was happening Moses wrote it at a later day. Moses wrote it before the Israelites were about to go into the promised land. And here's what had already happened at that point. You can read about this in the book of Deuteronomy. God had already created a new covenant with his people, and he had given them laws, and he had told them how to live in a blessed and beautiful place. And God knew that their hearts all had an anti-God mindset to them and god knew that they were not going to be able to satisfy all his laws so again in the book of deuteronomy you can read how god instituted a process where they would sacrifice animals at an altar to pay for their sins, to atone for their sins. And that would be a process that they would have to repeat over and over and over again because it would never permanently pay for their sins. And so when the Israelites read this account and they see God covered Adam and Eve with skins, they know in an instant this means there was a sacrifice. This means it was the first sacrifice. They understand clearly that a sacrifice, a life was required, to pay for their sins, and that's what God does there. You know, God offered that to them as a temporary sacrifice, a temporary payment for their sins, but all through the scriptures, God begins promising a permanent sacrifice. Sacrificing an animal on the altar had to be repeated again and again and again. God promised that one day, he would send a perfect sacrifice, and it would be Jesus Christ, and Jesus would be sacrificed on the cross, and he would be a permanent sacrifice. It came in the fullness of time, it came through a woman, and it came to destroy the deceptive work of Satan. From 1 John 2, verse 1, it says, "'My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. "'But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense.' Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here's what we see. God has covered Adam's sin and Eve's sin by sacrificing an animal. He continued to cover the sins of the Israelites the same way. And today he covers the sins of the world through the sacrifice of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And to those who accept that sacrifice, who choose it, He calls us his children, and he brings us back to this place where we have unity with him. It's a place of beauty and blessing. Now, the consequences of the fall are still around us, but our place with God is now safe and secure. Romans 8 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what no condemnation means. No judgment, no nakedness before a holy God. That's what you get if you accept Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. We see God's grace here and that he limits man's lifespan. That's why he's taken out of the garden. The idea of eating from the tree of life and living forever in this fallen state is so disturbing to God that he doesn't even finish his sentence. And he immediately takes them out of the garden and limits their lifespan, not out of condemnation but out of mercy because this wasn't the way they were created to live. So that's where we are today. Our creation is pretty much in the same state. It began with blessings and beauty. In three chapters, it eroded to curses and judgment. And we know what it's like now, don't we? We know we're all prone to an anti-God mindset. We're prone to let our desires dictate what we do. We know that that deception-desire cycle, it continues. It's at work within us where we doubt God's word, we doubt God's character. We're driven by desires. We know that Satan is nipping at our heels He's working uh, against God. He's working to damage our souls, and he does it one decision at a time. That's the catastrophe that sin and disobedience has wrought in our world, but God is still a gracious saving, rescuing God, and here's what he does. He still gives us a choice. He says you can choose blessing. You can choose the beautiful, blessed place. So that's how we return to the beautiful, blessed relationship we have with God. We choose trust and obedience instead of deception and desire. Ladies, there's a lot in this life we have no control over, but one thing you control in every decision will you be obedient to God. In each decision, you have control over that. Choose obedience. That's how you stay within the boundaries of everything that God said is good for you. We can also know God's character. Knowing his character will protect us from being deceived. We know because he tells us he's a God who pursues a relationship with each one of us. We can stand firmly on God's word. That will protect us from being deceived. That's exactly what Jesus did when Satan was tempting him and trying to deceive him. But we have to know it accurately. We have to be able to recall it. We have to apply it. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. No distorting or denying. And then we need to practice this painful process of confession because confession knits us back together in our united relationship with God. So when we hear God's voice, where are you? What have you done? We don't need to be worried that that's a condemning, angry voice trying to make us feel crummy. That is our saving God rushing in, trying to restore us. If you're feeling guilty or convicted, stop hiding and confess. God has graciously offered us the gift of a right relationship with him, but it's a gift. We can't do it on our own. It's pure grace, and it's the gift of Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf, and God lets us choose. Both the freedom and the responsibility to choose is ours. So you can choose, ladies, to return to blessed and beautiful. The creation changes drastically in three short chapters, but God doesn't. God doesn't change. He's the same holy, powerful, all-knowing, good, gracious God. He set the world in order to put you in a good place, to put you in a place where you could live in a blessed and beautiful relationship with him. And his grace has provided all that is needed to keep you safely in that place. But you get to choose. You get to choose curses and judgment or blessings and beauty. Deuteronomy thirty nineteen says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Choose life. Let's pray. God, you are good, and we are overwhelmed with your goodness to us. We are overwhelmed and thinking perhaps it's too good to be true that you keep pulling us back into a relationship with you even though we keep falling short. But your word tells us it's true and we experience that truth in our life, so we trust it, Lord. Um, my prayer is just that you could, you could help us to obey, you could help us and protect us from deception. As we study your word, Lord, that you could plant it so deeply in our hearts and so deeply in our minds that we can recall it when we need to and not be deceived, Lord. Our prayer is also that you could purify our desires. Um, You tell us that you put your spirit in us and you change us, Lord. Change our desires so that we would desire the things that glorify you and not the things that give us independence and freedom. You are a good and an awesome and a gracious God, Lord. Help us continue to choose life every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.